The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Well, since um, Jonathan insists on saying nice things about me, I, I feel like I need to say nice things as well about you. Um, not because he said something nice. That sounds terrible. Um, I just I need you to know how profoundly grateful I am for you people. Um, I don't know a lot of you, but I do know and love a lot of you. Uh, and I'm grateful for the home this place has been, obviously, to Jonathan, but to other people I love and care about. And I'm thankful for the faithfulness of this community, for who you are and have been, and who you're becoming. Um, I'm, I'm excited to get to, uh, to speak with you guys. And to be in this series, when Jonathan asked me, he said, what do you want to do? You want to just kind of preach whatever's on your heart or... From Hosea, and I was like, Hosea, wherever you guys are at, that's where I want to be. I, I want to just kind of slip into where you guys are at as a, as a family. And so I'm grateful to be here this morning. Um, I was reading this week, it's in um, the Washington Post, I think, wrote an article about a, a girl named Crystal Haig. Uh, maybe you're familiar with her story. She was a 14 year old girl living with her mother and sister in West Baltimore. And in 1997, she went missing suddenly. Um, the last she was seen, she walked into the grocery store where her mother worked. She bought a few items. She said hello to her mom, told her mom that she was going home, and she disappeared. They never found her at home that night, and for, for over 20 years, she was missing on posters, and her, her mom never knew how to move on. She literally never left that house in West Baltimore because she lived in this anxiety that at some point, Crystal might come back home to that place and not find her mother. So she refused to leave this place. She was tied to it. And in, in some incredible turn of events, Crystal, just over 20 years later, walks back through the doors of that same home. It's a very interesting sort of story. But she didn't walk back into that home as Crystal Haig, a 35-year-old woman, like she would have been according to the posters, right? She walked back to the door of the home as a 44-year-old woman from New York City named Crystal Saunders. The story revealed that she'd not been kidnapped, she'd not been trafficked, she'd not been dragged off, she had willingly left. She'd run away because of sexual abuse she'd endured at the hands of a neighbor. She thought her mom knew all along and had just neglected her in it. She had a lot of resentment. She leaves home for that reason. She gets to New York, and she takes on this alias. She's Crystal Saunders. She's nine years older. She takes on this whole new life. She starts working. Even at 14, she's working. She eventually has four children, has a whole new family, a whole new community. She lives in this predominantly Dominican neighborhood in New York. She even learns to speak Spanish. And so when she walks back through the doors of that home, she's a completely different person. And that's what made everything complicated. There was no beautiful, easy, Hollywood script kind of reunion. It was complicated. It was difficult for them to try to, to rebuild their relationship. It was a bit of a mess. And that's the kind of imagery that Hosea uses to describe what's happening in Israel. It's a, it's a relational metaphor that he uses. It's an emotional metaphor. It's 
something much more like that than just a, a legal proceeding. It's a family metaphor. Israel, Hosea will tell us, is the adulterous wife of a faithful and loving husband. That's what's happened. That's what's transpired in Israel. And I think what happened in, in Crystal's family is a really apt metaphor for what's taken place in Israel. They've run away willingly. They've taken somebody else's name upon themselves, not his. They seemingly speak another language all together. They can't even relate to him any longer. So much has been lost. It's this gut-wrenching sort of moment. And there is no easy reunion. You can't just pick up where you left off. It's, it's hard and it's painful. And that's why chapter 4 sounds so painful. If you read the rest of it, it's gut-wrenching. There's seemingly nothing redeemable to be said about Israel at this point. It is hard to hear. And interesting, that's, a, that's exactly where chapter 4 begins. Here. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen to what he has to say. Even if it is painful. Even if the words are harsh. Hear what he's speaking. We're called to listen to the charges. That's the kind of language being used. Listen to the charges that are being brought against you. To what you've done. Don't lose sight of that. But I, I think very often this very familiar courtroom sort of imagery that the prophets will use over and over again. If you read the prophets, you're familiar with it. The prophets are always bringing charges. They're saying God and all of creation are bringing charges against Israel and all of their wrongdoing, their sin and idolatry and rebellion. But a lot of that is kind of lost on us. A lot of it is obscured. It's hard for us to hear and understand because we have this modern notion of justice. We tend to portray justice as, as blind and objective. You've seen it. The image of this blindfolded woman holding scales in her hand. That's our image of justice. That, that blindfold, it signifies something. There is an impartiality. There is no prejudice injustice for us. That's the way we see it. It represents a, a judge who is not partial, who will not allow his bias to affect it. He is completely objective. That's what we have in mind very often. A, a jury that has been handpicked, intentionally chosen to guarantee its objectivity. But God's justice cannot be described as blind or objective. It's different. The justice of God has to be seen otherwise, and Hosea is getting at it. God is not just a judge sitting behind a bench. God is not some objective third party who's been brought in. God is the offended party. And we have to see that. He cannot be objective. He's not just the judge, some custodian of the law. He is the one who's been victimized. And we don't often recognize this. Hosea shows it to us. He's witnessed. God has seen all of it. 
He's eyes wide open to all of their sin and rebellion. He's seen every act of idolatry, every act of sin. He's seen it all as it's transpired. He is not objective in this scenario. He's not disinterested. He's not indifferent. He is more than that. He's deeply connected, inextricably wound up in relationship with these people. He cannot be objective. They're his children. This is his bride. This is the kind of language that's used to describe his relationship with them. And that's why you get the visceral and raw emotion of Hosea. I'm sure you noticed that. All the prophets have a tendency to, to get emotional and raw, but Hosea, I think he probably portrays it best of all. What you might call the, the divine pathos, the, the pathos of God, the emotion of God. We tend to get that wrong. Obviously, in the church, there are people who will talk about this sort of emotional relationship that exists between us and God. That language is used, and very often we'll kind of We'll obscure it. We'll lean far too hard in that direction, such that this becomes some individualistic sort of statement of how much God loves me and I'm in this sort of intimate cuddle-up with Jesus kind of relationship, and people can go into like a really strange place there. And then there's the other people who don't know how to even interpret all of that, how to experience that kind of love from God. And Hosea lands in this very honest and raw Kind of place. He really demonstrates for us the pathos of God. Hosea's life, his relationship with Gomer, it reveals to us a God who's not distant, who's not apathetic, but a God who's emotive, a God who feels something for these people. That's what we get in Hosea. That's why he portrays the violation of the covenant in relational terms and not just legal ones. It's more than that. It's not just that the rules of a legal covenant have been violated. It's that a marriage has been trampled. And we cannot forget this. I'm a, naturally a peacemaker. I was born uh, the third of four children. And I have found that most of my life, I am always trying to accommodate other people. It is not a virtue. Don't misunderstand me. I have never seen it that way. It is as much a hindrance to me as anything I'm the guy who's, who's impossible in these kind of scenarios, right? So maybe you ask me uh, to go to lunch. Where do you want to go to lunch? Not only am I indecisive in that moment, from the moment you ask me, I'm trying to decide where you want to go to lunch. I'm looking for clues, like, because my desire is to go to lunch where you wanted to go to lunch before you ever asked. It's ridiculous. It's impossible. We're going to search forever. We're never going to make a decision. We're going to be half an hour late to the lunch we planned because of me. And with that comes a deep discomfort with the word no. If you suggest anything to me, if it's legitimate, if it's good, I want so desperately to say yes. I want so desperately to accommodate It could be completely impossible for me, completely unrealistic. But because you've asked it of me, I want to do it. I want to say yes. My wife pointed out in the early years of our marriage, that was true of every relationship I had seemingly, but my relationship with her. There was, there was this interesting thing that, that happened. She said, 
Anybody else you say yes to all the time, but me, I'm the only one you can ever say no to. And it was a, it was a hurtful thing. Now, for me, that came from the fact that I had this relational depth with her, this relational equity. There was a, an intimacy that existed between us that allowed me to feel comfortable being really gut-level honest with her about where I want to go to lunch. It allowed me to actually say what I want, including when I did not want to do what she was asking me. She's asking me to do something, and I, and I feel this, this comfort. There's this honesty between us. I can say no. So here's what you realize, and I realized early on. With this relational depth, with this incredible intimacy, this unique relationship among all the other relationships in my world, with that kind of depth comes also a potential for a depth of wounding. We know this. The people in our lives who we care about the most are the ones who are capable of hurting us the most deeply. We know it. We've seen it play out. And that's the sort of scenario we're seeing in Hosea. A unique, deeply intimate relationship with the Holy One of Israel. And it's been violated. It's been broken. And it's emotional. And it's painful. And we ought to allow ourselves to sit in it. We ought to allow ourselves to feel what God is feeling. Because he's capable of that. That's who he is. See, a, a stranger's contempt might bother us. It might even keep us up at night sometimes, but not like laying in the bed next to someone who no longer feels anything from us because we've betrayed them. That is Hosea. Allow yourself to feel the deep sort of wounding that God is experiencing. Hosea's marriage to Gomer, it, it really gets at it. Like, like, we listened to it, and Jonathan hinted at it last week, how hard this must have been for him to hear that he was supposed to marry this woman that he knew would be unfaithful to him. His relationship with her, though, it, it reveals this deeper, more intimate, relational covenant. Not just a legal covenant, but a relational covenant with God. It's not just a transaction. This is not just some deal God made with his people, and they're supposed to hold up their end of the bargain. It's more than that. Sin is not just the violation of a covenant rule. It's not just a, a, a broken promise. It is a dagger in the heart of God himself. He feels it. It shakes him. Can you imagine a God that fragile and vulnerable with his people? That is who our God is. That is what Hosea is, is revealing to us. It's not just a failure. It is the betrayal of a relationship. It's more than we might have seen. We've not merely broken some rule. We have wounded God himself. We have leaned in close like Judas and placed a kiss on his face. We're the betrayers. We're the ones who've undone all of this. So when God says here at the beginning of this passage, when he says hear the word of the Lord and the harsh words begin to fly, the argument begins and it gets really ugly for a moment in what is a deep and intimate relationship. It's going to get really painful sometimes, right? That's exactly what's happening. And we can't try to soften it or pull the teeth out of what the prophet is saying, which we so often want to do. We can't turn away. We have to listen to every painful word, which is not what we're good at. We want to jump right to Jesus. We want to jump right to the beauty of the gospel. This is the beginning of gospel. The hearing of the harsh word 
We must hear God's no. We need to sometimes. We must hear that in this privileged privileged relationship, there's sometimes that no. God is speaking it to us in Hosea in these moments. And the heart of, of this season, I think, of Lent, is this constant reminder of the way in which Christ heard his father's no. The way in which he humbled himself and heard that word again and again. When he enters into the wilderness, which we're remembering throughout this season, for 40 days he's alone and hungry, isolated and vulnerable, and he's hearing his father's no. As he kneels in Gethsemane, he's hearing his father's no. As he hangs upon the cross, he's hearing his father's no. And that is the beginning of our redemption. Christ hearing God's no. And we should expect that in hearing the hard words, in hearing God's no here in Hosea, it is the beginning of redemption. There is a hope in it. Hosea himself will say in chapter 6 that God has a way of wounding us in order to heal us. God has a way of tearing us to pieces, striking us down, but to bind us up. We foolishly cannot be reached any other way. And so he does it. In all of our stubbornness, he's willing to wound us so that he might heal us. And it's only in listening to the harsh words, the really hard things that are being said, that we begin to understand the true nature of what we have become so often. When chapter 3 ends, there's that beautiful image. You remember from last week what Jonathan was talking about. Hosea and Gomer are reconciled. He goes and he buys her back in this beautiful way. And there's this statement at the end about Israel. Not just Hosea and Gomer's relationship being reconciled, but but Israel being reconciled to their God, returning to the Lord. It's a very clear allusion to repentance. That's the word in Hebrew for repentance so often, return. Israel will repent. Israel is still capable of repentance. They will return to the Lord. It's beautiful. Chapter 4 begins with the harsh reality of where repentance starts. Hearing. Even the painful word. Even Nineveh, right? Even Nineveh is capable of repentance. But not until Jonah is willing to go there and speak the hard and frightening word of destruction. Repentance begins in the hearing. But we often have kind of a a rather one-dimensional view of repentance. I don't know about you guys. I grew up with a very one-dimensional view of repentance. I grew up hearing preachers say that the repentance is about turning And in the Old Testament, that's pretty much it. Turn and return. That's the the sort of language that's going to be used. That really gets at the heart of it so often. But what we meant by turning in repentance was, again, very one-dimensional. It means I recognize that something is wrong and I stop doing it. That's repentance, right? No. Repentance must be more robust in our minds. We need a more fully orbed view of repentance. There's more to it than that in the Old Testament. It's interesting. Repentance is not just recognizing as something as wrong and and deciding I'm no longer going to do it. It's replacing that with something else. Repentance is, is not just some sort of glorified form of sorry, which is what it's become for a lot of us. Repentance is not just regret. Repentance is more than regret. It's repair. 
It's rebuilding. It's renovation. That's repentance. Repentance is the entire reorientation of my life around the truth. I'm not just going to stop doing the one thing. I'm going to begin to build my life around something else entirely. That's repentance. Because we have so often built our lives and oriented them around something that is a lie. And here has been given to us the truth. I'm going to build the whole of my existence around that thing. Repentance is more than what we've so often seen. We cannot forget that. It's, it's allowing God to uproot something from within us and plant something newer and better in its place. That's repentance. I, I really love the language of, of Walter Brueggemann. This is how he defines repentance. He says, repentance is the reimagining of our lives. It's the reimagining. Repentance is that act whereby I begin to imagine what my life would look like if it were completely aligned with God's purposes, and I remove everything that's out of line with that. It is a re-imagining, a re-envisioning, a dreaming. What would my life look like if I gave it completely over to the rule and reign of God? That is repentance. It is more. It is a re-imagining. And Lent is an invitation into that kind of repentance. Even when it's painful, even when it means hearing the harsh, honest, raw word. The process of returning to the Lord, as Hosea is saying, is going to happen for Israel, cannot begin until this hearing takes place. It cannot be initiated by anything else but us listening. So, this morning, listen. Listen to what the Spirit is speaking. I think that the mistake that so many of us make in coming to church is we assume the responsibility has been given to a certain group of people, the leadership of the church, the people who are leading worship, the person who's speaking. The idea is that they will have studied and prayed and listened to what the Lord is speaking, and now they will disseminate that information to us. I think that's a mistake. I think God has invited us here this morning together to hear. We've been invited together, corporately as the body, to listen to what the Spirit is speaking to the church. You're not just watching something unfold up here. This is not a performance. We are together listening for what it is the Spirit is speaking to the church, so you have to listen, even if what you're hearing is harsh. And the chief complaint that, that Hosea will raise against God's people in all of this is that they do not know God any longer. They have no knowledge of God. The word in Hebrew is so interesting. It's hyphenated, actually. There's this list. It's not just that they don't have any love. They have no love. It's hyphenated. They don't just have no knowledge. They've got the no knowledge. It's this interesting idea. They're worse than just not having knowledge any longer. They've substituted no knowledge in its place. It's so interesting how powerful and, and strong the words are. He goes on to say as well that they have no faithfulness. You heard that, right? No, no loyalty or integrity to, to what they said they were going to do in the covenant. They have no love, he says. There's no mercy. There's no compassion such that they have become a violent and oppressive people. They are guilty of bloodshed, it says. 
just like the people in all the cultures around them. They look no different now. They neglect the poor and the marginalized just like the rest. But the pinnacle of what he's saying, what he will repeat throughout chapter 4, if you read the rest, it's all about this no knowledge. They have none. He says they've rejected knowledge. He says they are destroyed by lack of knowledge. It is out of that, this lack of knowledge, that everything else flows. Their lack of love, their oppressive, violent practices, their idolatry, their skewed views of who God is, their, their idolatry and, and, and the mixed up kind of worship that they demonstrate, all of it flows from this lack of knowledge. Because they do not know God, their lives demonstrate what Jonathan was talking about last week. A distorted vision, a distorted view of reality. And as all of this plays out, as things begin to shift in their minds, something falls apart. As, as knowledge dissipates, everything else begins to be defined. Our lives begin to be defined a reality begins to be defined by our experiences, by our circumstances, or in Israel's case, by the cultures around them. They define reality according to what they're seeing in these other cultures. And it happens to us as well. What's true sometimes shifts for us. What was once good in our minds now has somehow become gray. We live in that kind of culture. Postmodernism doesn't help. We begin to espouse an alternate reality altogether. That's what's happening in Israel. They lack knowledge. They've bought into something else entirely. I like what uh, Abraham Heschel, he was a Jewish scholar. What he had to say about Hosea is really helpful and about the prophets as a whole. What he says that, that the role of the prophet is, the responsibility of the prophet is to make known prophetic truth. And, and he defines prophetic truth this way. He says, prophetic truth is reality as reflected in God's mind. Prophetic truth is truth, reality, as reflected in God's mind. Now, we define reality based upon our observable experience, upon scientific fact, upon what we've seen and touched and known ourselves, upon what culture tells us, role of the prophet as absurd as what may be coming out of their mouth may be, right? The reality they're giving us can sometimes sound strange, outlandish, but they are revealing to us reality as reflected in God's mind. Not ours, not our experiences, not our facts. Hosea is revealing to us creation as God intended for it to be. God's people as he intended for them to be. That is what he's done. How our lives fit into that reality. That's what Hosea wants you to see. And without that knowledge, with this no knowledge that exists in Israel, without this truth, we degenerate into something less and less human. We begin to fray at the seams. But it's, it's really important. I, I know the, the concept of the knowledge of God sounds really abstract. It sounds like a preacher's sort of word. 
Uh, and I, I feel like one of the most important things you have to do as you read the passage is kind of like name what you think that means. Define that. Drill down into that. What do you mean by the knowledge of God? And it's a really loaded term in Hebrew, like deeply loaded. The, the Hebrew word da'at and what Hebrew or what Hosea is calling da'at Elohim, right? It is a loaded term that he's using. It's communicating more than just like an awareness, right? Not just a, a mental sort of knowledge. It is, it is more that is being spoken of than just an awareness of Yahweh that has been lost in Israel. They haven't just forgotten what he's like or who he is. It's more than that. The first time you see it is in Genesis 4. It's knowledge of God, and it's described in relational terms. Adam knew Eve. He knew Eve. Same word. Adam knew his wife. That makes sense. It's the next detail that kind of gets it. it. Maybe there's more happening here. Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant. I don't know what kind of knowing was going on in the room that particular night, but it, it's more than just an awareness, right? Because she had baby Cain next. Adam knew his wife. It's communicating something about sexuality. It's communicating an intimacy that exists between Adam and this woman that he now dearly loves. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he says, right? It's expressing that intimacy between a, a, a father and a mother who have a child together, between a wife and her husband. That's the kind of knowing that God intends to exist in this relationship we have with him. Not just an awareness of him, but that kind of intimacy. If you read a little bit further, you read in Exodus, you'll recall Israel is languishing in slavery. And they cry out. They cry out to God that, that he might redeem them, that he might see them and all their suffering. And what we read is not just that God sees or hears their cries. The author tells us repeatedly that God hears and knows their suffering. He knows it. It's the same word. He knows their suffering. And it, what it's trying to communicate is that God identifies with them in their suffering. That there's some level of sympathy God feels for them. Because you know the next detail in the story. God feels something so strongly about what he knows of their situation that he begins to single-handedly dismantle Egypt, the most powerful empire on the planet in that moment. Piece by piece, he takes them apart to redeem his children from slavery. This is a knowledge that does something in us. It demands something. It's a, a knowledge that must be acted upon. We see it. When God says he knows their suffering. It's more than just informative. It's not like God suddenly realized they were suffering. It's not like God suddenly realized the light came on and he had been blind to what they'd been dealing with in slavery. No, it was more than that. God began to identify with them. He had sympathy for them, such love in him that it, it transformed their situation. That is the knowledge being spoken of. Knowledge of God must require something of us. And that has been lost in Israel. Somewhere along the way, it, it's, it's passed away. Israel had become a lot like Eli and his sons. If you remember, Eli was the, the high priest at Shiloh. It's this interesting scenario that plays out there. Eli is a, a good man, but he has terrible children. And what we read about his, his two sons is that though they're priests, they knew 
not the Lord. Same word. They didn't know the Lord. Now, here's the thing. If you're the sons of the high priest, clearly you're aware of who Yahweh is. You can make sense of all of that. But there's more happening here. They know exactly who Yahweh is. They probably have some level of theological knowledge of Yahweh. They've, they've been there. They've lived in this world. There's more happening. Somewhere along the way, they lost their conviction. They'd become corrupt. They let everything else fall away. Their commitment to their calling did not exist any longer. Whatever knowledge they had of God, it was incomplete. They didn't really, really know God. That's what Hosea is getting at. That's God's beef with his people. That's his problem with who they've become. At some point, who he is, who they knew him to be, it stopped affecting them. It stopped changing who they were. At some point, the relationship they had with him, it became commonplace. It was taken for granted. It was a relationship that could easily be re replicated with any of the other gods of the land and all these other cultures. God had called them into a unique relationship, a deep and intimate relationship with the Holy One of Israel, the Exalted One. Instead, they had gone to bed with a stranger. They'd taken that name upon themselves. It's gut-wrenching. They have no knowledge. They don't really know God any longer. And Hosea's words beg the question. They force us to ask ourselves, has the same happened to us at some point? Has that relationship God has invited you into, this deep and intimate kind of knowing and being known, has that become ordinary to you? Is that common in your mind? I think in our culture it can become so ordinary. Have you become satisfied by less than a deep and intimate knowing? Have you become satisfied with something else entirely? Do you actually know God as he intends for you to? Do you know him in this, this other sort of way? And if so, has that knowledge sown in you the seeds of the kingdom? Or is it something else entirely? Because knowing is more than simply being aware of, is what Hosea is getting at. And this is really important for us, because we live in a culture that craves information, Right? We live in a culture where we are constantly looking for another outlet through which we can consume information. That's what a lot of social media is about. Information. I don't know about you guys. I zealously long for more information in my life. That's what social media, that's what our news feeds, that's what the 24-hour news cycle is about. We want as much information as we can get. We want to be thoroughly informed. We know about seemingly everything. And yet, it doesn't have to affect us in any sort of way. Think about it. You can hear about the atrocities that are taking place on the other side of the globe, maybe even in our own country, and it doesn't have to affect you. It's kind of convenient. I'm informed about it. I know about it, but it doesn't have to change anything. I don't have to pray for those people. My heart doesn't have to be anxious or concerned for them. I don't have to feel that. 
I'm comfortably insulated from it all. It's convenient. We consume information. We hear about political corruption. And I don't have to inconvenience myself by actually doing something in response to that news. When the time comes to vote, if it's inconvenient, I'll just stay home. It doesn't matter. I can't really change anything. It's this sort of comfortable way of, of consuming more information. I can hear about it and, and, and not be changed by it. I can hear about the fact that the earth is seemingly fraying at its seams because of our neglect. And I don't have to change any of the details of my life. I'll leave that to somebody else. I'll let them pass laws. I'll just kind of passively participate in it. It's easy to consume information in the same sort of way. It doesn't have to change or affect the way we live our lives, and it doesn't take long before our spirituality consists of the same thing. We are just the consumers of information. We show up in a place like this, we read our Bibles, we come and we do the worshiping thing, and it just becomes nothing more than the consuming of information. I want to know more stuff. I want you to tell me more stuff. And that way I'll feel better because now I know more stuff. At least something's happening. Something's changing in me. I'm not actually changing or being transformed, but I do know more stuff. At some point, at some point this information, it becomes compartmentalized in our brains and it never makes its way into our hearts. It never flows into our hands and our feet. In worship, our hearts are so often pricked and yet our hands and our feet never are. And we, we kind of like the way that feels. It's more convenient. Many of us lose sight. Such that we do not know or love God, but more the idea of him. We're in love with the notion of God, but not he himself. Because again, with God and this deep intimacy comes also the harsh word, the truth, the honesty. Such that very often, he just becomes one among a number of our competing ideas or interests. We begin to accept things as they are in the world around us. We rationalize it. We even put like spiritual language on it. It happens over and over again. This week, I don't know about you guys, but I was listening to the news about this college admissions scandal. I don't know about you guys, but part of what bothers me so much about the whole thing I just never imagined Aunt Becky was capable of such corruption. <laughs> and um, some of you guys get that Full House reference, but I was deeply shaped by that family. Um, that's, that's the sort of Uncle Jesse scheme. She's the role model. She's supposed to, to keep that sort of thing from happening. I was listening to a college student, though. Sorry, I digress. I was listening to a, a college student in an interview, and they made the statement, the same statement that you and I have probably made before, and he said, What's happening to students in this process, this application process, this admissions process, it is unjust. But that's the way the world works. He says, it's unjust because the world is unjust. And he just said it in this sort of passing way, kind of moved on to the next part of the interview. I mean, how many times have we said something just like it? How many times have we believed that about our city? How many times have we believed that about the church? Yeah, it's wrong, but it's just kind of what's been handed to us. It is what it is. It's easy to capitulate to this alternate reality. It's easy to capitulate to a distorted view of reality like Jonathan's talking about last week. 
rather than reality as it exists in God's mind, what God is longing to come. Reality is reflected in the kingdom. See, that's the tragedy of Hosea. There's a tragedy at the heart of it, that God's people no longer know their Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. They don't even know Him. But the beauty of the Holy One is that He desperately desires still to be known. They don't know Him, and yet He will not stop until He is known. That is what's so unique, I think, about the Holy One of Israel. He refuses to remain at a distance. He refuses to remain indiscernible and unknowable. He is always desiring to make himself known. When he calls Abraham, and he, he makes this powerful statement that he's going to be a blessing to the nations, that Abraham will bless the nations, it's getting at the heart of what God desires, to be known even among the nations. When God speaks to Moses from some bush in the desert, it is because he desires to be known. He tells Moses, tell them I am sent you. He wants his name known. This is who he is. When he reveals himself to his people at Sinai, when he speaks his name over them, saying, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is because he desires to be known. When he speaks to David and says, there is a better king, a far better king coming, it is because he desires to be known and that king has been made known in Jesus. In Jesus, we see more thoroughly, more clearly, the God who will not be satisfied with remaining at a distance. He will be known. It is hard for us to imagine what it's like to see God or to know God, and in Jesus, he has become knowable. In Christ, every boundary to this deep and intimate knowing that he desires for us to have with him, it has been removed. That is the beauty of gospel. We don't just get to know about him. We get to know him in this deep and intimate kind of way, this relational kind of way. There's a oneness that he intends in our knowing of him that causes us to join in the redemptive work that he's done in Jesus. See, in Jesus, we have known God more thoroughly than, than at any point in history. What we know of Jesus makes clear to us the substance of the Godhead. Maybe you've been mystified by God. Maybe he's, he seemed indiscernible for so long, but you have seen him in Jesus. So may we desire to know him. I keep hearing the words of Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. You probably remember it. Let's make it our prayer today. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him even in death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Amen? Father, we ask that as you invite us into this deep and intimate knowing, we would not be the fools who choose a stranger instead. 
God, would you reveal to us, Lord, we, where we've accepted a distorted and alternate reality rather than that which you've always intended for us. Would you open our ears that we might hear you speaking what you desire for the church to hear. Change us and transform us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.